Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. Let's talk about the Fairness Doctrine. It's a term getting thrown around a lot today by politicians and pundits who say they want to bring it back, but who don't really seem to grasp what it was or how it worked. We're going to try to take a small step toward remedying that today by exploring the Fairness Doctrine's history, what it was, what it wasn't, and what it would mean today. I'm your host, Corbin Barthold. I'm delighted to be talking today with Paul Matsko. Paul is the editor for technology and innovation at libertarianism.org and the host of the podcast Building Tomorrow. He's also a leading historian on the Fairness Doctrine. His first book, The Radio Right, How a Band of Broadcasters Took on the Federal Government and Built the Modern Conservative Movement, was published last year. Paul, it's great to have you on. It's a pleasure to be with you, Corbin. So, Paul, people hear fairness doctrine, and it seems they think, who doesn't like fairness? There's a lot of misinformation out there. A fairness doctrine would force media outlets to give equal coverage to both sides on an issue. You know, hey, let's do that. I'll pick on Max Boot as one person expressing basically this sentiment. In a recent piece in the Washington Post, he called on the Biden administration to, quote, reinvigorate the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. To get a clear picture of everything that's wrong with this sentiment, I think it'd be good if you could walk us through the early history of radio, how the Fairness Doctrine came to be, above all, what the Fairness Doctrine was, and how it rose and and then fell. Yeah, so it's... It's funny when I hear people talk about the fairness doctrine today um, because it's it's almost totemic in quality. I mean, people don't actually know much about the real history of the fairness doctrine. And they just assume that, hey, if you stipulate fairness, you'll get more fairness in speech. And um, so and I think it's useful to note that the period of actual uh, enforcement of the Fairness Doctrine was relatively short. We're talking about from the 1960s through the 1970s, maybe about 15 years, give or take, uh, from the mid-60s to the mid-70s. So it's a very short period of time that's actually in effect, but the roots of the Fairness Doctrine are quite old. Uh, and that's because the Fairness Doctrine was an attempt to solve an insoluble problem that goes back to the very early days of radio. And that insoluble problem is... Uh, can you control the radio airwaves? Can the government control the radio airwaves in such a way as to guarantee simultaneously both free speech, the right of people to say whatever they want on the airwaves, and to encourage good speech, speech that the government favors? Can you both have free speech and fair speech? And that's a that's a that's a it's an impossible impossible problem to set for a government regulator because every attempt to create better speech, to remove bad speech, hate speech, whatever you want to call it, and encourage kinds of speech that the government favors necessarily involves infringing on free speech rights. And that's there from the beginning. Um, when I say beginning, though, I should note the earliest days of radio were this kind of interesting space um, in the early 1920s before the, uh, the precursor of the Federal Radio Commission uh, before 1927, before the federal government really gets a very active role in radio regulation, there is this span of about seven years where radio is just kind of a, a, a frontier, a new mass communications frontier, kind of like the internet in this regard. There is no regulation. Um, it's a free-for-all, but it's a free-for-all in ways that I think were actually quite beneficial. You had this very diverse uh, set of broadcasters. You had, you know, churches were snapping up radio stations and broadcasting religious services. Socialists were snapping up radio stations and broadcasting, you know, the socialist message. Uh, labor unions, immigrants, there were uh, stations that served primarily black listeners and, uh, you know, kind of Tex-Mex listeners on the Texas border. There was this really diverse, interesting, innovative, weird, radical early days of radio that very quickly got squelched by the, uh, the federal communi radio communications, um, uh, commission. And, um, so, and as soon as they did, so we started seeing questions of free speech 
uh, versus the desire to push for fair speech and really the whole fairness doctrine dilemma, uh, the clock started ticking. So one thing that is interesting that I've heard you mention before, you tell a story really well of how in the 1920s, basically anybody could broadcast on any part of the spectrum at any level of power in any location. It was this total free for all. Um, and it was sort of almost like a category area that because you know it, it is true that we need to license it out and make sure that there's sort of one person in one place at one time, otherwise there's just total uh, cacophony. That turns into, well, there's a limited number of spectrum spaces and there's more demand. So we need to be fair about it. And you mentioned that there never actually was more demand than available spectrum. And I go, wait, what? That's wild because yeah. that is such a um, axiomatic principle behind the fairness doctrine. So, so what is going yeah. on with that? Why is that not better known? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it, it's not better known because there were lots of very powerful political industrial interests who wanted to you know, use the scarcity principle as a justification for their control of the airwaves. Um, so that's why it's not better known. The, the evolution, how we get from this free-for-all in the 1920s to uh, radio broadcast regulation in the 1930s and 40s is really interesting. So again, you have this really fascinating space. And when I use the word free-for-all, that might evoke like lawlessness, anarchy. It's, it's a problem, in other words. But actually, much the opposite. Um, this was a, a fascinating space. There, were, there was a disagreement between radio station owners where they would infringe on each other's signal. Because if you have two stations with the same signal in the same area, they, it creates interference, right? And it, it just hurts both of the broadcasters. Both of them get more static, get more interference. It hurts everyone. So you actually had very early on in the twenties, a kind of evolving self-regulatory system. There was a role for the U S uh, for uh, the commerce, the uh, department of commerce, uh, where people would basically kind of say, Hey, I'm taking this slot and they would notify, you know, the, the commerce department and, and everyone would recognize, okay, that's theirs. And you kind of get this, this carve out in this, this regional area. And everyone knew to avoid, you know, to avoid trying to put up, set up the radio station on that slot in that area where there were areas of interference. Well, it would go to the court system and the courts would rule, hey, you know, you were there first. You kind of have squatters rights, et cetera. So there was this evolving system of self-regulation um, that was starting to evolve that had a kind of a register register role for the federal government, but not, not any kind of direct interference. They weren't licensing people in the way that uh, they would later on. Um, Herbert Hoover is at the time the Secretary of Commerce, and Hoover uh, had an ideological problem with this situation. Hoover was a progressive Republican. He did not like unfettered capitalism. He also did not like, you know, like kind of socialism, full bore government control of the economy. So he wanted like a third way in between the two. So radio in the early 1920s is essentially an unfettered market, which he had ideological reasons to dislike. Also, again, you have lots of radicals on the airwaves. This is right after the first Red Scare. You can't have literal socialists on the airwaves. There was a station named after Eugene Victor Debs, WVD, in, in New York City, uh, airing a lot of like Yiddish programming for uh, Hebrew immigrant socialists. And so if you're Herbert Hoover, you don't like socialists. <laughs> you don't want them on the airwaves. So he has ideological problems with this free-for-all in radio. And so the Commerce Department actually manufactures chaos. They, they remove that like uh, record keeping system that they had um, set up where they kind of acknowledged, hey, you pick, you pick this part of the spectrum, you took that part. They pulled themselves out of that process suddenly and unsurprisingly that led to an uptick in, like, in conflict and overlapping because uh, there was no register. How did you know who was on what sector? You see what I'm saying? So they manufactured chaos and because of that, they created demand for more intrusive government control. And that's all part of Hoover's project. So we get the, the FRC and then later the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, where the government's going to actively license station owners. And as part of that license, they're supposed to air in keeping with the public interest. And we can talk about that in a second. But to your other point, Corbin, about the not hitting. At no point in the history of broadcasting, 
in America, have we ever hit the technical limit in the number of possible radio stations? And that's true whether you're talking about AM radio, which is the initial primary format, FM radio, which comes on a little bit later, it's let alone satellite radio and the like. We've never hit the technical scientific limit uh, and not even come close. So for example, the peak number of radio stations was a hair under 5,000 AM radio stations in the United States in 1990. Even that didn't hit the technical limit. But we could have had as many as 5,000 radio stations in the U.S. from the get-go. It's all in the same, essentially on the same frequency. Um, by 1930, there's 600 AM radio stations. By 1940, it's about 850, 2100 by 1950. So the number just keeps rising towards that technical limit that we never reach. Um, indeed, the, the funny thing about the scarcity principle, which is just a, a rule concocted by government lawyers uh, when uh, defending this new federal radio commission in court, uh, was that at the same time they're complaining about scarcity, they're manufacturing scarcity. So one of the first thing the FRC does in 1927 is they start taking radio stations off the airwaves. And again, who do they take off the airwaves? It's stations like uh, um, you know, WVD in New York gets assigned a much smaller slice of the spectrum. They almost lost their station license entirely. Again, they're socialists. Not cool if you're Herbert Hoover. Uh, uh, stations like WIBO and WPCC in Chicago, they lost their station licenses entirely, which was given to station WJKS in Gary, Indiana. Why? Well, because those the earlier stations predominantly served foreign language constituencies, immigrant communities in Chicago. The new station in Gary was English only, and it said, quote, they, their programs stressed loyalty to the community and the nation while instructing in citizenship and American ideals and responsibilities. In other words, the U.S. federal government, because it was, you know, organized in the 1930s along nativist um, and anti-immigrant lines, preferred a station that was English only and didn't primarily serve immigrants. And as much as it did, it taught them to be good little citizens with non-radical political views. So... Point being, they manufactured scarcity, uh, just as they manufactured the chaos to justify the creation of the FRC. So it's always been a shell game. So when you hear someone talk about the scarcity principle, realize they're talking about an ex post, fact justific ex ex post facto justification, not a real phenomenon. So that's great. That takes us through the, the sort of wild west of the 20s and into the, as you explained, manufactured need for regulation in the 30s and into the 40s. I think you've kind of indirectly touched on the Mayflower Doctrine and maybe you can say what that was and then how that leads us into the major broadcasters sort of not paying as much attention to radio as we head into the 50s and the rise of the radio right, the subject of your book and the response and, and the true fairness doctrine and what that was during its brief heyday. Yeah. So the, the real, the immediate precursor to the fairness doctrine, uh, which again, more of a 60s story, but the, the precursor is, uh, comes along in the early 1940s. It's called the Mayflower doctrine, the Mayflower compact. Um, and what Mayflower, the, the precursors of this rule, it's an FCC rule. There had been, so Remember, early 1940s, late 1930s, this is the FDR administration, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, uh, you know, he, he was a, he won, you know, four presidential elections. Uh, if he hadn't died when he did, he could have just kept wanting them. He was essentially president for life um, at, at this point. There's a reason why we, after him, passed a, an amendment requiring only you know, two term presidents. Um, and his his staff, his administration, his campaign staff, they recognized that his ability to continue to win elections uh, after his initial win in 1932, that 1936 and 1940 would hinge on his ability to reach his constituents on the radio. And that's because an increasing number of, of newspapers, because you know before radio, it's the big newspapers that are the key distributors of information in the country. And if you have a newspaper owner who likes you or doesn't like you, it made a big difference back then politically. You know, newspaper uh, editorial support uh, was a much bigger deal back then than it is even today when there's, you know, alternative forms of, of, of mass media. And by, the, by 1936, 
the newspaper owners were starting to turn against FDR. They're turning against the New Deal. They don't like his Supreme Court packing plan when he tries to you know, pack the Supreme Court so they stop blocking his legislation. They see this as budding uh, authoritarianism. And this is a problem for FDR uh, because these increasingly anti-FDR newspaper owners are starting to buy radio stations. Now, radio has traditionally been a very friendly space to FDR, but if these newspaper owners buy up these stations, they're going to put anti-FDR messages that used to just be in their print papers on the airwaves. So something has to be done. There's a couple of things FDR tries to do. He his the chairman of the FCC at the time is Larry Fly, and he's he quote puts the blowtorch on Larry Fly to do something about these anti-New Deal newspaper owners buying stations. They tried to create a, a cross-media ownership ban. It fails, uh, but it temporarily prevents radio stations from buying uh, uh, newspapers from buying FM radio stations. Uh, ultimately, it's Nixon who successfully gets a, for similar reasons, gets an, uh, an anti-multimedia uh, you know, ban. Um, but the other thing that they, they do is they use, a, they have a little, they have a nice little case, um, uh, case study, if you will. Uh, a, the Yankee network, the owner of the Yankee network, it's like a regional radio station network in the early 40s up in, you know, Northeast Boston area, had been criticizing the New Deal uh, on the airwaves. And one of his former employees, uh, disgruntled employees, sued for the right to that license. So it's like a, an up or down, life or death. If you own, if you suddenly lose your radio station license, your station isn't any good anymore. So it's a, it was a, um, the FCC decides to hear the case, which was itself surprising, given that the disgruntled station employee didn't really have any capital, any much equipment. He wasn't really ready to run a radio station. He just was trying to bother his former employer. But uh, what the FCC wanted to do was to test uh, whether or not it was okay to criticize the FDR administration on the airwaves. And so in this ruling, it was the Mayflower, it was the name of the radio station, um, in this ruling, they said, look, if you own a radio station, you're not allowed to editorialize at all. And by editorialize, I mean express your own opinion about politics. Um, you're, you're supposed to be fact, just the facts, ma'am. No, you know, uh, uh, opinion, uh, opinion making being put on, on, on the airwaves, no editorializing. And that's the rule for the next couple of years until, the, until 1949. It's very unpopular and very hard to enforce. But it does have a chilling effect, which was the point of it in the first place. The point was to suppress opposition to FDR. The point was to suppress politically unpopular speech. Um, but it's very unpopular. It gets lots of pushback from the radio industry, uh, from the big networks. So by 1949, the FCC says, okay, fine, 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 fine. We'll let you editorialize. It's okay. We'll repeal the Mayflower rule. You're allowed to editorialize, but... If you do, you have to air kind of both sides of view on controversial issues of public importance. So if you air something that's criticizing, I don't know, the, the 1949, the Truman administration, the development of the nuclear, of, of hydrogen bombs, of advanced nuclear weapons, then you need to air something that's also in favor of it to be in compliance with your, the, your public interest requirements of your radio station license. So you need to have kind of um, uh, lots of different points of view, not just your own point of view being advanced. So that's the fairness doctrine in vitro. It's not called that then, but the, it, and it's not really, again, it's hard to enforce because to enforce that would require government monitoring of every radio station would require, you know, just really intrusive, large government apparatuses that didn't exist. So it's, it's enforced um, uh, in the breach, really, rather than in, in fact. And so it's not until the 1960s that the Kennedy administration realizes, oh, wait, we've got all these right-wing radio hosts um, who are popping up on the airwaves really kind of overnight. It took everyone by surprise that suddenly there's all these conservative radio broadcasters on the airwaves in the, in the early 1960s. And they're attacking the Kennedy administration. Kennedy doesn't like that. The first concern of a first-term president is becoming a second-term president. He doesn't know he's about to get his head shot off. So he's planning for re-election. And what can he do to help his odds? If he can take down this, these annoying right-wing radio stations a notch 
and what's the perfect tool, the regulatory tool that's just kind of lying around that's underused, ready for the first person with the savvy and the foresight to pick it up and, and, and wield it? The Fairness Doctrine. And so he tells his FCC chairman, uh, a fellow named uh, Bill Henry, to he makes him the FCC chairman. And he says, hey, keep, keep the stations fair. And of course, what he meant by that was fair to me. To <laughs> right? me, yes. To me, to me. That's the, that's the key phrase here. And launches, you know, I describe my book as the most successful uh, episode of the government censorship of the last half century that almost nobody has ever heard about. So I definitely want to jump into the modern context on the internet. But uh, before we get to that, just very briefly, uh, Kennedy basically, I, I think it's fair to say, weaponizes the fairness doctrine, is pretty successful. Um, and then uh, we eventually get to Nixon, and he uh, sees this as, as also a good thing and tries to use it. So let's talk briefly about uh, what does Nixon do, and then how does it lead into the demise of the fairness doctrine? Yeah. So, yeah, both, as I tell folks, the key difference between Nixon and Kennedy when it comes to the abuse of executive power is just that Nixon got caught, right? Kennedy was actually, in many ways, uh, more ambitious in his willingness to abuse executive authority. And so, very briefly, what Kennedy did with this anti-radio right censorship campaign, it was two-pronged. Um, the first prong was to target right-wing radio broadcasters with uh, uh, IRS audits. Um, and there was this whole thing called the Ideological Organizations Pro Project where the IRS went over their, you know, their tax exempt status with a fine-tooth comb, tying them up in expensive litigation, you know, ultimately removing tax exempt status for some of these right-wing radio state uh, uh, programs. Um, it, that part of it, Consider it this way. Imagine if the scandal a few years ago uh, during the Obama administration, when it was found out that the head of I the IRS, Lois Lerner, had slow rolled approval for Tea Party groups. Now, there's no evidence that was tied to Barack Obama himself or to members of other members of the administration. It, it, she just didn't like Tea Party groups herself, it appears. Um, but imagine if there had been. Right? Imagine if you found out that Barack Obama had ordered Lois Lerner to slow approval you know, tax exempt approval for Tea Party groups because he didn't want them going online, uh, getting lots of donations as he was pushing for ACA, for healthcare reform. Like that would be a huge scandal. That's a Watergate level scandal. That didn't happen. That's precisely what happened in the 1960s with JFK, his abuse of the IRS, targeting again, right-wing radio broadcasters. The other half of this was to use the fairness doctrine directly. Um, he, like I said, he leaned on the FCC chairman, uh, Henry. We got a bunch of rulings that enhanced both the uh, uh, targeted the enforcement of the fairness doctrine solely against conservative voices. If they aired their viewpoints unbalanced, uh, the radio stations that aired them would get into trouble with the FCC via fairness doctrine complaints, but not vice versa, not if unbalanced liberal points of view were being broadcast they didn't get in trouble. So it was, again, targeted only towards one side. Um, and uh, as, as a result, um, yeah, with the, the right-wing radio hosts who had been climbing through the late 50s and early 60s, uh, the, the most prominent of them, a fellow named Carl McIntyre, who's a fundamentalist Presbyterian minister in New Jersey, he had an estimated weekly listening audience of 20 million in 1964, which, for sake of comparison, is as many as Rush Limbaugh did uh, 40 years later, and when the, the national population was, you know, significantly larger. Um, so these broadcasters were huge and influential, and they just got kind of choked the both the flow of money and the number of stations willing to air them. Uh, they, you know, the, the stations were intimidated. They could lose their license. In fact, you know, one of them did. There's a famous test case called Red Lion Broadcasting that goes to the Supreme Court. Uh, where the Supreme Court upholds, they don't realize they're upholding a censorship yeah. campaign, but they are. One thing um, I learned from you was how that was in, in fact sort of a staged test case. I hadn't known that until I, I read your work. Yeah. yeah, it's another, it's, uh, if, the, if the US Supreme Court, maybe I shouldn't have this much faith in the institution, but I do like to think that if the, if the justices had known that that case was rooted in uh, a, the Democratic National Committee 
was giving financial aid. They were buying health insurance for uh, the, the, the claimant in this case, a fellow named Fred Cook, who's complaining about, you know, personal attack on the airwaves um, against the titular Red Lion uh, broadcasting station. Um, if they had known that this was a DNC sponsored test case, all part of a grand plan that began with the Kennedy administration and continued after his death to suppress right-wing broadcast speech, I think they might have ruled differently, but they didn't know that, right? Like we have, you know, we have access to archives and audio files that they didn't have access to then. But yeah, Red Lion, it was uh, ultimately validated one of the most successful censorship campaigns in U.S. history. It should be right up there with the Alien Sedition Acts, the Comstock Laws, the Fairness Doctrine. Um, so it's, it's, it's deeply ironic. But uh, we get to Nixon. Nixon has that authoritarian capability just as much as, as Kennedy. And Nixon says, hey, I don't like the fact that, that television and radio networks are criticizing my administration. They're, they're criticizing my conduct of the Vietnam War. And this, this I don't like this. And you know, Nixon's paranoid. He lost to Kennedy in 60 by a very narrow margin. It possibly stole an election. So he's paranoid about re-election. And he sends his his you know operatives Chuck Colson uh, Haldeman. He sends uh, I think it's actually Colson who goes and meets with CBS executives, and he reports back that just merely the threat of using the fairness doctrine was enough to make CBS executives cordial and accommodating, to use Colson's phrase. So it was again he didn't have to necessarily wield the fairness doctrine; he just had to threaten to wield it, to get his way. Um, and it's actually Nixon's use of the Fairness Doctrine that makes a, a number of former Democratic operatives who had used it under the Kennedy administration, they start realizing, oh, wait, if we use these rules as weapons, then, oh, that's right, we're not going to be in office forever. The other guys get a, a turn too. They get to use these tools against us. Oh, fair to you is not nearly as fun as <laughs> fair to me. That's right. That's right. And so that's actually why some of these uh, some of these documents exist is because they, they started to have regrets about their involvement in the earlier campaign. So, yeah, and, and Nixon does other really shady stuff like, um, as you can imagine, he doesn't like Catherine Graham, who's the owner of The Washington Post at the time, which is breaking the Watergate scandal. And so this is when we get the passage of the uh, cross media ownership ban. He's trying to punish Catherine Graham, who owns the Washington Post, which he can't go after because it's print media. And print media has much stronger First Amendment protections than broadcast media. But he can go after Catherine Graham's television stations that she owns in very lucrative markets in Florida. So he does. He forces her to divest some of those television stations. But thankfully, she's a you know, woman of conviction and stands her ground. But how much different? We might not have had a Watergate scandal if, uh, if print media was being regulated more like broadcast media. Well, we probably should do a separate episode on the recent decision in Prometheus Radio Project on the cross-ownership rules. I'll just have to leave that as sort of a cryptic remark for those of you who are not um, well-read into those rules. Uh, warrants a whole separate episode. Um, but so we, we come to the decline. And, you know, one thing, and I should put this in, it, it, it doesn't really have a natural place to come into our conversation. But one of the big mistakes about the fairness doctrines people don't really understand, because you, you mentioned newspaper and how they're subject to different rules. And when this term gets bandied about, it seems to be missed that even in its heyday, we're talking about uh, radio broadcasts and spectrum limited television broadcasts. We are not talking about cable television. And that's I think right. that's a good lead in to the discussion of um, the fact that unlike radio, it is said that the internet was born free. And, you know, what is that? mean and how has that worked out and um you know why has internet been treated differently and do you think that's a good thing yeah one of the funny things about the internet being born free and not born captive is how accidental it was how easily it could have gone the other way and what i mean by that is it's you know the internet mass consumer internet is starting to be adopted before congress and they did the administration of state get around to trying to regulate it, right? It's not until the mid 90s that we get significant uh, congressional and administrative action. You know, the 96 telecommunications, the Communications Decency Act, everyone's arguing about Section 230, you know, out, out of that, out of that law. But that's pretty late. I mean, we're starting to see consumer internet adoption as soon as a decade before that for early, early adopters, and definitely by the early 90s. Um, 
And so the internet is born free. And the only people who are, who are kind of um, the people who are adjudicating uh, what the internet's going to look like is the court system. Just like in the early 1920s, it was the court system that was kind of adjudicating disagreements between, you know, radio stations and budding radio networks and the courts just as a bit of an accident of history, they decided that uh, online life would be regulated more under a print regime than under a broadcast regime. And the reason why that's arbitrary is that if you, if you think about it, so, um, and, and the fact that they did so is clear just from how they describe the internet, right? Like we talk about electronic mail, email, even that reference, rather than saying electronic communications or e-com or electronic, right there, we, or electronic broadcasts. I don't know. We, we call it email. It's a reference to a print medium. That is what we call its, its online version. Um, and time and time again, you get those references. They decide it, it looks more to them like print rather than broadcasting. When in reality, the fundamental technology that undergirds the internet is, is a function of the electromagnetic spectrum. No different than broadcasting. Your internet is a broadcast medium. We just don't think of it like that. It is signals that travel along cables. Your Wi-Fi router, router you know, expels electromagnetic waves. Um, it is a broadcast medium. We just decided it wasn't in, in the court system that would look more like print. And why that's meaningful is that in, in at the same time as the federal government was asserting its right to have a lower uh, standard for First Amendment protections in broadcasting in the 1930s and 40s, uh, the court system was asserting much higher uh, expanded protections for print media in the same at the same time period. Cases like Near v. Minnesota, uh, later on, 1960s, think of the Pentagon Papers cases. Essentially, the court system uh, was saying, no, 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 you, like, you have to have a very high bar to clear before the government's allowed to restrict free speech rights in print, even as it was lowering the bar in broadcast. So it makes a huge deal whether the court systems decide that the this new internet thing it should be regulated like print or like broadcasting it goes with print and we know that for a variety of reasons you take like section 230 of the internet uh some good work by jennifer huddleston brent score up they have a nice paper about this subject which is that uh section 230 was an attempt to codify a rule that had previously applied to booksellers so again print medium and uh, at one point in time in the early 20th century, there was this big controversy. Do, do booksellers, are they responsible when they sell books in their bookshops? Are they responsible for the content of the books that they sell? Can you sue a bookseller, in other words, or, or you know, pursue criminal or civil liability against the bookseller for publishing obscene or you know, dissident speech? You know, if they publish a communist, can the federal government go after them for, for publishing a commie? Are they on the hook? And there was a, you know, the courts had ruled previously that no, booksellers aren't liable for third-party content for the books that they sell. The authors of the books are. And so what they did with Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act was apply something that had evolved in the common law, if you will, in uh, print circles, applying to books to the internet. That's what Section 230 is. It's just a codification of something that had already been evolving. But again, that's a print thing, not a broadcast thing. So that's why we're very, we should be very, very, very thankful that the haphazard evolution of early internet regulation went with print rather than broadcasting as the basis of internet regulation. Well, and I will also introduce the point that uh, it's, it's fascinating and very um, kind of just lucky and arbitrary that that happened, given that you have red lines saying, well, there's limited spectrum, so we need special rules. But then you have like Miami Herald versus Tornillo that is saying, well, even if newspapers have a lock on information in an area, the First Amendment still trumps. And those seem very inconsistent. It's, it's strange. Yeah. So let's dig into the current push for fairness. I don't think there's ever stopped being people who want a fairness doctrine. What's new perhaps is that many Republicans now want something like it. And one thing uh, we should definitely mention, it's Republicans who ultimately put the stake in the heart of the fairness doctrine in the 80s. Um, and yet today we have things like, for example, Senator Josh Hawley, who introduced a bill in 2019 that would have forced a social media platform to convince four out of five FTC commissioners um, that the platform moderates content in a 
politically neutral manner in order to keep its Section 230 protections. So what shifted? What happened with the GOP here? It's an interesting question. It, it kind of assumes that the normal, the normal state is GOP Republican and even broader conservative ideological opposition to the fairness doctrine, just as a kind of matter of doctrine. Um, and I'm actually not sure that's true because, I mean, so the, the history we just described, right, where both in the 1960s and 70s, both Republicans and Democrats uh, in presidential administrations were willing to use the fairness doctrine to extract ex uh, um, concessions from uh, networks to repress political speech by their you know, opponents. Um, that's kind of the, the default state that the party in power, whichever party it is, the ideology uh, with control is willing to use these tools to go after their political opponents. Now, what's interesting is why we ever deviated from that. Why Republicans from the, uh, in the 90s and aughts uh, until recently tended to be opposed to the fairness doctrine on kind of a visceral level. And I think it's an artifact in part of Ronald Reagan himself. You know, when he was running for president in the late 70s, in 76 and then 1980, um, after he's governor of California, he is given his, his choice when he loses in 1976. He's given his choice. Does he, want a, um, does he want to be the chair of the RNC? Does he want to be the ambassador to Great Britain? Does he want a primetime news slot on, I believe it was CBS, uh, once a week? He says no to all those things because he wants the, the, the opportunity to have a radio voice. And so he spends the next several years until his successful campaign in 1980. In fact, he did he delays declaring his candidacy as long as possible before the election 1980 so he can stay on the airwaves because he gets that that's the key to building a grassroots movement is having a voice on the airwaves. So Reagan was, yeah, we remember him for television, you know, but he was the great communicator on radio too. He got the power of radio. And so the reason why, you know, he pushes his FCC in 87 to uh, end the fairness doctrines because he just believed it on the personal level. So it's partly an artifact of Reagan, but then it's worth noting that when Reagan, Reagan ha has to veto a, a congressional proposal to bring back the fairness doctrine, to codify it, to move it from, you know, just administrative law to actual, you know, congressional codification. And it has bipartisan support, broad bipartisan support. It passes. Reagan has to veto it. Um, so Republicans were still on board with uh, with the fairness doctrine in in eighty eight. It's only once talk radio takes on you know really takes off over the next couple of years. Rush Limbaugh eighty eight is when he goes nationally syndicated, uh, and very quickly it becomes clear that this new unregulated radio space is going to skew right, skews conservative, and so I think the reason why you get just kind of general visceral right wing opposition to the fairness doctrine for the next. 20 odd years, quarter century, say, is because it benefited right the right, it benefited conservatives um, to have this, this, you know, talk radio space that skewed so heavily conservative. So I think we're actually talking about this period from the late 80s till, say, four or five years ago. That's the exception to the norm. And what Trump and the national conservatives, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz at all are doing when they're trying to bring back the fairness doctrine is actually a reversion to the kind of policy mean. We should expect this to be a, a realm for whoever has political power to try to suppress the speech of people they dislike and uh, uh, to protect the speech of people that they do like. Well, as so often occurs when I host this show, we've, we've just descended into cynicism. And uh, yeah, so <laughs> listeners, when you hear fairness, what, what it means is power and fair to me and my power over you uh, is, is where I guess we're headed. Uh, let's turn back to Democrats on that cheery note. Ahead of a recent House Energy and Commerce Committee hearing, uh, Representatives Anna Eshoo and Jerry McNerney sent this letter uh, to cable providers and others, asking them a bunch of these pointed questions about the channels they carry. And they ended by asking if those uh, providers are going to continue carrying Fox News and Newsmax and One America News, and if so, why? Um, and even to someone like me who thinks what Newsmax and One American News did after the 2020 election was egregious, this letter was really chilling. I mean, it really looks to me like direct government harassment of the press. Um, and to tie into what you've been saying, you know, right out of the, the Kennedy administration playbook. So 
Um, now that we're establishing that basically the fairness doctrine is this political weapon um, that the parties will use if and when they can to their specific advantage, what do you think the chances are that the two parties will find some kind of common ground in an effort to create you know, this unholy alliance and create a new fairness doctrine, whether that be on the internet or for media in general? How worried should we be about that? It's funny when when I first heard about that letter, you know that that was sent out. You know, like, are you going to continue to carry these, you know, fake news, uh, misinformation carrying outlets? I was reminded of an episode in in my book in uh, 1967. Uh, Senate Democrats sent out a letter to every uh, uh, radio station in America on you know official letterhead. So, like, imagine you're a radio station owner. You got a letter saying uh, the Senate, the Commerce Committee is investigating the problem of far-right, radical-right broadcasting in radio today. And we just want to ask you, which of these stations, which of these programs, it, it, you know, asked them, you know, listed a number of them, do you carry? And, uh, and like, ask other questions, like, why do you carry them? You know, is it profitable for you to carry them, et cetera? And um, sure enough, when you look at the, when you look at the story of, of the stations that received this letter, they got the point. The point was intimidation. The, it was not just a mere ask for information. It was, hey, you know, we're looking into doing things to take down the influence, this, to suppress the amount of influence that the uh, radical right has on the airwaves today. Are you part of the problem or are you part of the solution, Mr. Radio Station Owner? And um, so anyways, it's called regulation by lifted eyebrow. Right sure. or uh, uh, legislation by lifted eyebrow, I suppose in this case that maybe you can just use uh, informal pressure by government officials to coerce behavior, uh, which and if you get enough of that, then maybe you don't have to go the whole hog and spend political capital on new legislation and the like. So again, you know, as much as things change, they stay the same. So that that is very much a corollary today to what happened in, in 1967. Um, as far as whether we're going to see some sort of uh, cross uh, cross aisle alliance. I, I don't think so because the, but with this important caveat, I don't think that that, that is so because uh, even though both sides, both Democrats and Republicans, have an interest in changing the uh, internet regulatory scheme, like both sides have called for, you know, both Donald Trump and. Joe Biden campaigned when it came to internet regulation, they came on the same, they campaigned on the same plank, which was to reform section 230, get rid of section 230, even not just, not just tweak it, but to actually get rid of it and start with some other sort, sort of basis for, uh, for an internet regulatory scheme. So even though they're united in what they don't like about the current policy regime, they have very different visions of what should replace it. So for Republicans, and there, you know, there's lots of bills that were proposed during the Republican-controlled Senate days, like um, uh, limiting Section 230 immunity to Good Samaritans Act was one bill, the Online Freedom and Viewpoint Diversity Act, uh, both of which would narrow the scope of Section 230 liability. Um, I think Lindsey Graham was a co-sponsor on one of those. Uh, so like, um, but, but that, that goal is kind of at odds with the goal of a lot of the democratic proposals. So the Republicans want to prevent, they want to get rid of section 230 so that they can remove the ability of, uh, online platforms to, uh, content moderate and remove right-wing leaning speech. So, you know, in, in the case, that's why after January 6th, when the big internet platforms removed a lot of accounts that had called for insurrectionary, insurrectionary type violence in, in Washington, uh, th those accounts got removed. And a lot, of the, a lot of these, you know, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz and the like thought that was inappropriate. They don't want that kind of content moderation. They want that speech to remain online right-wing speech of that sort should remain and not be content moderated away. Whereas, uh, you know, left-wing advocates for removing Section 230 protections, they want, uh, they want less of that kind of speech. They want to require platforms to content moderate away content like that, right-wing speech. So they both want to get rid of Section 230, which protects, simultaneously protects online platforms' right to both remove speech as they so desire without forcing them to remove um, any, you know, all these categories of non-criminal speech. Uh, it's, you know, both sword and shield. 
one side wants uh, only the sword, one side wants only the shield. And uh, so I don't think you're going to get a, a you know a, 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 an alliance in a direct sense. But what you will get is that like who is the party uh, for leaving the system as it is? Who is going to stand up and say Section Two Thirty g- gave us the modern internet, uh, which is this marvel of modern technology, has made America the leader of the internet-based economy? Um, who's going to say that was a good thing? We shouldn't be tinkering with this. It has very few natural defenders now in either the Democratic or Republican Party. So even though they're not going to work together uh, uh, on on the same legislation, like uh, I, f- I find that unlikely, they aren't going to. They are going to work together to undermine Section Two Thirty, and I, I have a hard time seeing either side standing up against uh, bad bills that would remove a very important protection. Well, as my good friend Baron Soka likes to say, in considering um, the 1934 Communications Act, you know, the, the very genesis of this kind of regulation, Congress rejected going so far as to downright force broadcasters to turn over their microphones to you know, anyone wishing to speak on a, on a certain public issue. And the Republicans really are actually going for that. They're going for, you almost might call it a fairness doctrine plus. Um, mm-hmm. We'll just have to see what happens. Uh, during that same Energy and Commerce Committee hearing, uh, it blew my mind how many times representatives sort of expressed this nostalgia for Walter Cronkite. One representative even referred to the halcyon days of Cronkite, you know, as if he was some kind of oracle of objectivity and, and balance. And I think if there's one thing we've we've really touched on multiple times this episode, it's it's the impossibility of this notion that the government can regulate balance, fairness ends up being my power to control speech. Um, and I'd like to tie that in as, as we draw toward a close to the great stuff that you've written on conservative radio, um, how it influences a lot of people and how this influence kind of flies under the radar of the chattering classes. I think there's this widespread discomfort, especially among the sort of highbrow people who cite Cronkite with this notion that media outlets might be explicitly partisan. Antonio Garcia Martinez had an interesting article recently in Wired called Journalism Isn't Dying, It's Returning to Its Roots. And, you know, he writes about how if Ben Franklin or Sam Adams saw our media today, they'd quote, find our journalistic ecosystem with its fact-checked both sidesism and claims to objectivity completely unrecognizable. So in closing, you know, how do you feel about our media landscape and about its future? Are you optimistic? Are you as sanguine as Martinez about it? Uh, are you concerned? And if so, you know, I think you and I have both made clear we don't believe in a fairness doctrine, but you know, what, what could be done? It's interesting. I mean, that phrase, you know, fair and balanced, a slogan for Fox News for a while, somewhat ironically, but um, that, but that, that concept is core to this you know, post-1970s uh, conception of journalism as a fourth estate, this idea that the journalists should remain impartial to, to the uh, maximum extent possible. They should be balanced and fair in the representation of issues. That is a modern conceit that would have been alien to the founding fathers. Um, and for most of uh, uh, U.S. media history, that would have been odd. Uh, both in newspapers and in other mass communication, uh, later mass communication mediums. I mean, you look at in the 19th century, when the number of newspapers boomed in the in in the in the you know in the early republic and then into the you know later in the 19th century, newspapers were were overwhelmingly tied to political parties. So there was a set of newspapers that supported the Whigs, a set that supported the Democratic Republicans, eventually the the New Republican Party. And it was very explicitly so. So we think of it as some sort of deviation from a post-World War II norm, like Fox News being, in a sense, uh, 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 an information arm of the Republican Party as it evolved uh, from the 90s on. That's actually more like the norm in U.S. media history, not the deviation from the norm. What was weird was this post-World War II period of both like political and kind of information uh, consensus. Um, but that was an artificial consensus. It was created by excluding radical voices from both left and right socialist stations. We talked about conservative stations like we talked about with the Fairness Doctrine campaign in the 1960s. It was a consensus uh, as construct. 
And so uh, if, if anything, what we're seeing is uh, media kind of reverting to its, its, its again, expected mean uh, uh, throughout American history. And I think that's actually potentially okay. Uh, you've been talking about these new mass media spaces, both with radio in the early 20s, uh, the internet in the early 90s as these free-for-all spaces that because they are unregulated, uh, essentially unregulated, um, are lots of diverse, weird, interesting, radical, innovative stuff is possible in those spaces. Uh, the same thing applies to you know, new mass media today. Uh, the, the example of which is the show we're on, right? Podcasting is itself a new mass media form. It is like radio in one sense in that it's, it's audio, not visual. So it's more like radio and television, but unlike radio, it's not live, it's recorded. You can take it with you and listen to it anywhere. So it's like radio, but has actually additional power um, that radio doesn't have. The barrier to entry is significantly lower. Once upon a time, radio lowered the barrier of entry to get one's message to a mass national audience. Podcasting has lowered it again. Anyone can have a podcast. In fact, sometimes it feel like, feels like everyone has a podcast, right? Um, and guess what? In this unregulated space, podcasting isn't regulated. There's that's not a thing. In this unregulated space, you're seeing all kinds of diverse, weird, interesting, innovative stuff that people, combinations of people, whether they are religious, uh, racial, ethnic, ideological, whatever minorities are able to build huge mass national uh, audiences in podcasting, and they would never get get a sniff, never get a, a a hint of that kind of access in the older incumbent, more expensive radio and television industries. So, like we're seeing that happen right now. I'm so I'm I'm excited about the the future of of mass media as this space where people feel free to experiment, and they take those experiments in uh you know in more radical and interesting ways. Um, I, I, so some of this, we're, we're so much of this arguing is about we're arguing about uh, older applying really old models to old models of information uh, uh, of of you know information dissemination um, when that's going to feel really dated in just ten or twenty years. Um, so there's something promising on the horizon on the horizon there. Um, so you know. Take heart. I love. I'm trying to end on an optimistic note. It's not all cynical. It's not all. <laughs> Don't look now. We are ending on a sunny note. I. This is spectacular. Paul, Good. thank you so much, Corbin, for the chance to come on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Everyone, buy Paul's book, The Radio Right. Covers a lot of the history that we've talked about here in far more detail. Uh, follow Paul's work. He's doing great stuff. Um, is there? Are there any future projects or events you want to mention before you go? I think once this is out, I'll have a piece comparing, for the history nerds out there, I have a piece comparing national conservatism in 2021 to the Redeemer Democrats of the 1870s, uh, which you know is, should be interesting to all you who like 19th century history. Um, and otherwise, I'm actually ready to start a, book, a second book project, a follow-up to this one, talking about um, the role of that censorship campaign, the Fairness Doctrine censorship campaign, and its connections to the creation of uh, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and you know, National Public Radio. Um, so there's going to be some interesting stuff come down the pipeline in the next couple of years, but you're going to have to wait a while for that one. Well, well, we'll keep our eyes peeled. Paul, you're welcome back on anytime. I'm Corbin Barthold. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.